the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this fabulous series about uh, the Quran and this time about the place of origin or alleged place of origin of the Quran, which is Mecca. Of course, we, we've been using a, a book by Dr. Stephen Shoemaker called Creating the Quran, and we covered a, a various angles from that book. And now we're talking about a geographical location that is so important for Muslims, and that's Mecca, the origin of Islam, and in this case, the origin of the Quran. We did uh, ask this question last time, and we said, what about Mecca? And we began to show quotations from Shoemaker himself and Patricia Crone and others challenging the Islamic narrative concerning Mecca itself. Today is no exception. We will continue to explore that question, which is, what about Mecca, part two? What about Mecca? Absolutely. Isn't it interesting that this should have been the first question that any historian asks whenever uh, whenever the claim has got okay, but it's been there for 1,300 years, this claim, or I would say maybe even 1,200 years, let's uh, give or take 100, that Mecca is where Muhammad was born. It was where he grew up. It was where he started receiving the revelations in the Hidda Cave right outside of Mecca. You've seen the Hidda Cave. It's uh, it's a place that everybody loves to go to. Uh, it, therefore, he started receiving it there up until 622 when he then moved to Medina. And then he started receiving for the next 10 years the, the Medina Surah is the first part of the Quran. Mecca. Obviously, Mecca is absolutely important. Uh, we know uh, that Islam claims that it is where Adam and Eve were sent to uh, from the very beginning. So that's the first city in history. There is nobody earlier than Adam and Eve, obviously. You can't have a city without people. And that also is where Abraham lived in chapter 21 of the Quran. It's where he went into the Kaaba and destroyed the idols, according to chapter 21. So all these claims, ah, well, he lived in 1900 BC, these claims need to be supported. And Shoemaker is asking a perfectly legitimate question. If this man, Muhammad, was born there, grew up there, received the Quran from there, received it for the first 12 years of his ministry from there, and then moved up from there in 622, then certainly this place must have existed. Right. Certainly it must have been pretty important. If it's from time memorials from the very beginning of time, Absolutely, there must be references to it. Well, let's see if the Quran could have come from this one city. Right, and and, and these, uh, Dr. J, these are scholars who have very good or excellent academic uh, uh, reputation, and they're asking a scholarly question. You have Patricia Crony, you have uh, Dr. Shoemaker now, uh, you have also Dr. Houghton. I mean, we're not talking just amateur scholars, and they're asking the right questions. Absolutely. 
And so th- let's see what Shoemaker says. I love the quote that he has on page 114 of, of this book here. This is the book we're going through. On page 114, this is what he says. Despite the fact that we have detailed descriptions of Western and Southern Arabia from various Roman historians, including Procopius, look at his dates, 500 to 570 CE. Now, not only that, we also supposedly have references to all of Arabia from Ptolemy, Ptolemy or uh, Ptolemy is writing in the second century AD, and he gives us all the references to all of the towns. And he even mentions Makaraba, that many Muslims have thought was Mecca. We know that that has nothing to do with Mecca. We now remember the series we did uh, using Dan Gibson's material, showing that Makaraba is actually from northern Yemen, and this is a place that is in just between the just at the border of southern Arabia and northern Yemen, too too far south to be Mecca. It's not even the same. Uh, radicals. It's not even the same continentals uh, references. And that's why people who don't know Arabic make this mistake. You know Arabic. You know Makaraba cannot be Mecca. Now, that's true. I mean, if you use that word, then uh, you can say, well, it may sound like that, but that's not how you say Mecca. Yeah. Now, he goes on, he says that Mecca seems to have been completely unknown to the classical and late ancient world. The fact that Mecca is not named even once in any Greek or Latin or Syriac or Nabataean or Persian text. Remember, we did that. Remember when we did that and we looked at all the great civilizations and we talked about the Nabataeans in the north and we talked about Saba in the south and we talked about the Himyarites and we talked about the Ethiopians and the Eritreans and we talked about the, uh, we went up to the Assyrians and we went to the Babylonians and the Romans in the north. We went all over surrounding what would be Mecca today, every major civilization that predated the seventh century. And we asked, Asked a simple question. Had anybody heard of this place called Mecca? None. Not one word of this place called Mecca prior to the 7th century. Right. So this is what Shoemaker is saying. Not one is found in any of this Greek, Latin, Syriac, mm-hmm. Nabataean, or Persian literature. Persia, that's Iraq. That's the Sassanians. Right. They hadn't heard about it, and they're just to the east. So these sources provide strong evidence that Mecca did not have any significant significant cultural, economic, or political ties to the broader world of the late ancient Mediterranean Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And I want to comment on this. I mean, as a Muslim, when I grew up that way, this would have been a shocking statement to me because I've always been taught, and I know all Muslims are taught, Mecca was so significant that there is trade caravan going north and south during the fall and during the summertime. And there is a chapter in the Quran known the chapter of Quraysh that addresses this. Absolutely. We did this earlier. We looked at all these towns that do exist in ancient literature. Remember, we talked about it. Sana, you can find and talk, talks about ancient literature. Yeah, of course, Aden is well known because it's a port. You have Sana that is there in Yemen today. That's well known. Najran, that's just uh, just north of that. That's well known. Taif, that's just up on the mountains above Mecca, up on the plateau. Taif is well documented. Further up north of that is Yathrib. That's well documented. Further up, Khaybar is documented. Tamar is documented. We do, Petra is well documented. All these along what we know is the Western Plateau, those are well documented. Except Mecca. None for Mecca. It's amazing. You go south to Yemen, a lot of stuff documented. Absolutely. You can see that. Yeah, so if the missing this, link. <laughs> there's the missing link. And this is what Shoemaker is saying. You've got to have some reference to this if it's that important city. Now let's continue with this quote. Of course, once we recognize that Mecca was nothing more than a small village with only a few hundred inhabitants and a subsistence economy, 
its omission becomes perfectly understandable upon an open up open parenthesis. Now, when you see what he's doing here, folks, and this is one of the problems I have a little bit by I have uh, with Shoemaker. Where did he come to the supposition? There's a few hundred in Mecca. He's already assuming he just got done saying. There's nothing there in the Hijaz, but there must have been at least a few hundred. Well, that could have been a reliance on the standard Islamic narrative. Do you see what he's doing? He's playing both sides simultaneously. And this is what lots of scholars do. This is what I had problem with Hoyland. This is what got Patricia Cronus so angry. She would not at all say this. She would not say, she listen, why are you calling to Hoyland? Why are you calling these people Muslims when in the 7th century that word didn't even exist? There were no Muslim. Call them what they say they are. Write what the text says. It doesn't say Muslim. It says Arab. It says Sarasan. It says Mahajurun. It says uh, Maghreb. It says Ishmaelite. It says Hagarin. But it does not say Muslim. She got really upset when people would do that. We need to be the, be careful as well. I think Shoemaker needs to be careful. Uh, that He's already giving lip service. There must be a place called Mecca. It had a few hundred. How does he even know that much? Hmm. No, he doesn't. He's just supposing that. You can say that about Yathrib, but you cannot say that about Mecca. Continuing on, he then talks about the, the sea route, and he does, uh, this is in the same page. Concerning the trade route through Mecca, uh, it's quite clear that the evidence at hand makes it plain that such trade route bypassed both cities uh, on its way to the Mediterranean world. Now, what he's talking across, what he's talking about is Patricia Crone's book, uh, Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam, where she did 15 chapters looking at 15 different types of spices and just debunked yeah. every one of them. Not one of them went through a place called Mecca. There just was no Mecca. And to be honest with you, hats off to her because she did it at a time that this would have been taboo to even make uh, a reference to. And she has been vilified for that, yeah. but God bless her because of the fact that she's had so many languages, she could incorporate the languages, go back to the original documentation. And she went to the documentation there in Ajalis. She went to the documentation there in Yemen. She went to the documentation way over there in the western coast of India across the uh, Arabian Sea, got the documentation because she could read the documents. Why hadn't anybody done that before? From the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, all the way up into the 7th century, she was the first to get the documentation. And what she found is no trade. This trade was all maritime. Remember, she talked about that. It was all maritime. She just debunked uh, they would, uh, Montgomery Watts' trade route theory, completely shattered it. But she didn't go far enough because she did say about the, the sea trade up the Red Sea. She got that part right, and Shoemaker's getting that part right. He continues. He says, moving across the, uh, instead uh, the Red Sea by ship, as Corona in particular has painstakingly demonstrated, but both Shoemaker and, uh, and Patricia Crone didn't go far enough. What do we now know about the Red Sea? You and I did a whole segment on that. We've done right. study on it. We can't find any reference to anybody going on the eastern side of the Red Sea, on the Arabian side. There are no ports there for them to, to, to refurbish. All the ports are on the western side of the Red Sea, and these ports are well known, and they can be documented all the way back to the 4th and 3rd century B.C., and they all exist long, many centuries before Islam came into existence. Five different ports. What's fascinating about it, and this is something that both Crone and uh, Shoemaker have not really given slip services, the port itself that where you grew up, Jeddah, the people say, well, that would have been in existence. That would have been there. No, it wasn't. Hawking shut that down by saying that Jeddah was created to give, bring goods to Mecca. So Mecca was created for Hawk, then Jeddah was created as a place to then bring goods to Mecca, which would have been around the late 7th century, early 8th century. With that in mind, can you then understand why this is so devastating? If there's no place, if it doesn't even exist, if 
how then can the Quran have come from this place? Obviously, it did not. I want to, in the next episode, I just want to end off with this because I want to give some more scholarship on this. What did they say about Mecca? Absolutely important. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Until next episode, which is a continuation of this topic, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. We've been talking about the question or the pivotal question, the important question, the vital question about Mecca, because it is the place of the alleged origin of Islam. It is the place of the alleged birth of Muhammad. It is the uh, the place of the alleged origin of the Quran itself, if we were to rely, of course, on the standard Islamic narrative. But the fact is, many scholars like Shoemaker are quickly discovering that there isn't a whole lot to support this Islamic narrative. With me here, of course, to continue uh, with this discussion is our dear Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., I mean, you've talked about a number of things concerning Mecca in the last two episodes. We quoted Shoemaker and others, and their quotations are really powerful and should prompt people to ask this question. What about Mecca? Why wasn't it mentioned? Why didn't it have this prominent position as we're being told in the 7th century? Oh, well, I'll answer that very quickly. Just look at a map. Take a look at a map, and what do you notice? Mecca is in a desert, off the plateau, isolated from any water. Well, if there is no water, there is no food, no food, no people, no people, no place, no town, no city, no city, no civilization, no civilization, no history. That's all you need to say, and that shuts that whole paradigm. That's why there is no Mecca, not that early. However, however... There's something we need to even go beyond that. What about the content of the Quran itself? What about all these stories? Well, Angelica Neuwirth, fascinating. She gets into this whole discussion. Mm-hmm. I love to see what she does. Because you don't think of Angelica Neuwirth really confronting the Quran at this level. But look and see what she says. And this was back in 2014 and 2015 in two different works which she wrote. And she said this, The Quran clearly demands an audience that is best described as educated individuals familiar with late antique traditions because of its content. We must assume, therefore, she says, that an extensive transfer of knowledge had already taken place and that a broad scope of not only local but also biblical and post-biblical traditions were familiar to Muhammad's audience. What Now, she obviously still thinks it's Muhammad. She still thinks it's Muhammad. He has an audience. Mm -hmm. Remember what Shoemaker says. There's only a few hundred people there. Doesn't really have any history. But these biblical themes that are right through the Quran, the, the sophistication, Newworth is saying, suggest that there's an audience that understood this. Otherwise, who is it to? Who is this Quran written to? So that's the first problem. We get um, Wandsboro and Crone and Cook and Hotting. These are the big names in the, in the revisionist school. Especially Wandsboro. Wandsboro is kind of the uh, the the one who started the whole revision yeah, the, the school. father of the revision he's the father of the revisionist yeah. school yeah. and he wrote in 1977 on 
chronic studies, and especially Sectarian Milieu, those two books, 77, 1978, but this is the one on uh, chronic studies. When you look and see, when you look at the Quran, when you look at all this, these discussions that are happening, all these uh, arguments that are going on, this does not make sense in the 7th century because there's no one who would have understood these kind of arguments. There's no one that far south. There's no one in a place called Mecca who would have even dialogued at this level. This is very sophisticated. These are these are from traditions that are much further north, but not, not in the Hijaz. So look and see what they say. There is simply no basis to presume that the inhabitants of these places would have been either well-educated or deeply familiar with the cultural traditions of Judaism and Christianity in late antiquity. And yet they need to be if they're going to be reading the Quran. Or if the person who is writing the Quran, this, now they, of course, the Islamic narrative says it's Muhammad, he would have to be a, a certainly knowledgeable of this material. Therefore, when looking at the profundity of material on both Christianity and Judaism in the Quran— Wandsberg concludes that it seems far more reasonable than any significant cultural contact between Muhammad's earlier early followers and the world of late antiquity must instead have occurred somewhere outside of the central Hejaz. The Hejaz is that central area where you grew up. That includes Mecca, Medina. That includes also Jeddah today. That is why scholars such as and this is Shoemaker then takes it from here, and he says that's why scholars such as Cook and Crone and Wandsberg, Cook and Crone are the ones that wrote Hagerism in 1977. Mm-hmm. Right, they right. were the students of Wandsboro. They were writing a what-if scenario. That blew open this, really blew open this notion that any any of the Quran or anybody named Muhammad could have come from a place called Mecca. Hawting is the one that was one of their students as well, and he was the one that taught me, and he was the one that really pushed this for a whole year. I sat under his tutelage, and I heard reference after reference uh, shutting that down any notion that the uh, Mecca could be a place of scholarship or a place that the Quran could have come from or that even upon Muhammad, someone named Muhammad could have come from. Others have proselyted that the beginning of Islam must have therefore occurred somewhere much further north, much, much further to the north. Bingo. And that's the northern theory hypothesis. Yep. Everything points there. Like, for instance, you know, the other day uh, I was doing uh, uh, things on Sharia law and, uh, and even hadith, if you want to talk about hadith or even tafsir, you'll find the majority of these scholars come from Persia. My goodness, why would they come from Persia North and not from Mecca and Medina? Absolutely. And they were all writing in Baghdad. Right. So you can see they're all writing in Baghdad, which is in Iraq today, much, much too far north. So what does Schumacher, uh, what is his conclusion? Well, you can see what his conclusion is. We should therefore move the Quran, at least in some significant part, out of the central Hejaz, out of that place of Mecca, Medina, and into the world of late antiquity, as Wandsboro and as Crone and as Cook and others, Hotting and others, we they have done that. Why don't we do it? Shoemaker saying, and he's saying this uh, here in his book in 2022. So that he, whether or not he just finally came to that conclusion, it's important because what he's doing is he's quoting those who spent their whole career studying this very question. You can't get anybody who is more intrinsic in this, who's done more study on this than Dr. Patricia Corona. Uh, and that's why Wandsboro, who first made this supposition back in 1977, remember, he made the supposition back in the 1970s, and he got a death threat for that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Patricia Corona did the same thing with writing in 1970, uh, 1977 Hagerism, and then she wrote Trade in, in, uh, in 1987. She got a death threat. She was there teaching at Oxford University. Because of the death threat, she had to change institutions and move up to Cambridge University. 
And then from Cambridge, she was then headhunted by Princeton University, where she spent the rest of her time before she passed away. And I was in her office in 1995 going to debate this very material, this very, in fact, this very question. What about Mecca? What do we do with Mecca? And I remember she said, Jay, you're going to have to say this. You're going to have to say that. You're going to have to say the other. She started, gave me a list of 10 different things to say about Mecca and about the Quran, about it being that far south. Brilliant questions. I remember turning to her and I said, you know, Dr. Corona, why am I doing this debate? Why aren't you doing this debate? This is your study. You have the languages. You have the background. You have the experience. You're eloquent. You're a fiery person. And she started laughing. This is in her office. This is in 1995. She started laughing. She said, you know, Jay, I have a chair to protect. I have an institution that I represent. I cannot debate this in public. I can write about it in my books. And then I get peer-reviewed, and I have to respond to that peer review. But you, pointing to me, she says, you, you don't have any chair to protect. You don't have a doctorate. At that time, I didn't have a doctorate. You don't have an institution to represent. That's true. I didn't have an institution to represent. She said, the only person that, who you represent is Jesus Christ. What a, what a conclusion. The only person you represent is Jesus Christ. You have a freedom I don't have, she said. You can debate this. You go to come here to Cambridge and you pay, debate Dr. Jamal Badawi. Here are the 10. I will feed you the material, but you do the debate. And I'm, I'm saying it to Muslims who are watching now, any, um, or, or to Christians, not Muslims, sorry, to Christians or anybody that is listening to what Al-Fadi and I are doing here. This is your debate. This is your time. You can take this material. You can take what we're feeding you. And remember, this is coming out of well-reasoned, this is all coming out of material that is quoted. You notice what we've been doing this whole series. We're quoting scholar after scholar. These are Western scholars who spent their whole career coming to these conclusions. You don't have to go and do what they do. You don't have to have their chairs. You don't even have to be in their institutions. What you need to do is you need to debate this. Like Patricia Crone saying to me, saying to do this, you need to do this as well. Because this, what we're feeding you, must not remain uh, in your heads. This must get into the public sphere. This must go where it's needed the most. And Muslims need to hear this. And Muslims have to come up a uh, response. And I'm saying this to you, Muslims. You've got to respond to this. You've got to come back and tell us, what are you going to do with Mecca? You can't just leave Mecca there because there's nothing there. But let's widen that. Let's just don't look at Mecca. What I want to do next now is look at the Hijaz. Let's see what the scholars are saying about the Hijaz, because it gets even more difficult when you even bring Yathrib into this whole equation. Wonderful. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying this. We welcome uh, your comments, as always. Send us emails. Send us any suggestions about maybe possible resources that you would like for us to explore, as you've been doing. And uh, we are, of course, excited that... Our Muslim friends are even watching this. So we invite you as a Muslim, of course, to explore the resources and the sources and the references that we're providing for you. Come back at us. Tell us why you disagree. Give us a proof, evidence, written quotations, written uh, sources that can prove us wrong. So far, it seemed like all scholars that we've quoted have reached this simple conclusion. Islam, if we want to take it seriously, would have a northern origin and that's what we've been saying for all this time. All along, we've been drumming this, telling you there is something suspicious about the North that leads us to believe, if not all of Islam, at least the bulk foundation of Islam have emerged in that region. 
Thank you, Dr. J. Thank you, everyone. This is Alpadi. God bless. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.